Uh, we're going to give attention to God's Word, 2 Samuel chapter 4. If you would turn there, please, you'll need your Bible open. Uh, that's true of every Lord's Day. Uh, this, uh, this particular text you can find on page, I believe, 256 in the Pew Bible. I don't know what sparked this to mind, uh, but it's hard to believe uh, some of you weren't even born yet, but in the year, many of you, uh, and, and in 2000, there was uh, something crazy that happened uh, 23, it's hard to believe 23 years ago uh, during the 20, uh, not 20, anything, just 2000 election, uh, we had this, uh, this interesting twist, if you might remember, because of the electoral college and uh, the counting of votes. Uh, Al Gore had already conceded and congratulated George Bush the victory. Uh, but then they had to rescind that, and the margin in the state of Florida was so narrow that they had this, you know, this very familiar thing. I knew, I, I remember it distinctly because I was a grad student in Florida at the time, and of course they have this recounting in Broward County. There, there, are, you know, the hanging chads, and there are all these images on the news. And as they worked through all of this and the the, the legalities and the, the the details and all of the the finer things, uh, it took over, I think, uh, a month. To even determine who was the winner of that presidential election, it was kind of a peculiar place to be in. I mean, it's it's gotten to where we're accustomed to having to wait maybe a day, but you know, this was this was over a month. It was in limbo, and you know that that is just a small thing when you compare that to what King David must have uh, encountered and experienced as the one who was anointed by God, even at a younger age, who was to, to, to take the throne and to be the king, the future king of Israel. And the space between that day as a young shepherd boy of, of, of Jesse to the day that he was the king over all of the tribes of Israel uh, is pushing not uh, weeks and months, but decades. It's hard to imagine. Remember, David is promised the throne that it'll be his house and his lineage that will forever be uh, ruling as king over Israel. And it won't be Saul, the people's choice, the first king of Israel, because Saul uh, was uh, a man not after God's own heart and uh, his house would not uh, continue to reign. Saul's not ready to concede that. Saul fights with bitter jealousy against David, even though David is a commander in his army and is, is an instrument. And David has never returned. As we were reminded this morning, evil for evil is not the way to go. And David doesn't do that. But Saul is after him. And Saul now, at this particular point in our narrative and where our study is uh, in 2 Samuel, Paul is, is, excuse me, Saul is now dead. In chapter 1, we, we discover that he is killed uh, in battle against the Philistines and uh, all, along with him, his son Jonathan, his other sons, uh, they're, they're, they're wounded. He's mortally wounded on the battlefield uh, with, you know, a, a puncture to the stomach, which I, I guess if you, you know, you know, you drive to MGH, that can be repaired. But, you know, this is the ancient Near East. Uh, so this is a little different story. And he knows he's dying and he's on the battlefield and he uh, he ends up taking his own life because he doesn't want the, the Philistines to take him. Although there's this Amalekite that stumbles across him, remember, in chapter one and says, oh, and he takes David's crown and his 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 armlet and he goes to to, to David and says, aren't you excited, uh, you know, David, aren't you thrilled? Saul is now dead. And, and, uh, and he goes, how did you know that? And he says, well, I, 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 I killed him. It was a mercy to him. He was going to die anyway. And David says, that's ridiculous. You have no business doing that. That is not your duty. Uh, that, is, that is wrong. And David grieves the death of Saul, even though it is his enemy. Uh, nevertheless, he doesn't call. It's not your business. David assumes that the, what the man was telling is true. And he, he puts the man to death. 
Then there's this ongoing struggle, which in the previous chapter was recorded in chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And why is that? Because Saul's, Saul's dead, but Saul does have uh, one son, one standing son, Ishbosheth, who we've heard about and we read about in the previous two chapters. He is kind of a puppet king. He is, he's weak. He wasn't in battle. He wasn't killed. And, uh, and he's propped up by Abner. Abner is the great commander who's longstanding friends with Saul in the house of Saul. He wants to see his power and his influence. So Abner is this commander who is, you know, is grabbing for power. And so he props up. He gathers. It takes him quite some time. But he gathers the other nations. David is now back in the land of Israel. David is the king over his uh, home tribe of, uh, of Judah, and the capital of which is Hebron. And David is there, but not all of Israel. No, not at all. That's been gathered up underneath this puppet king and Abner and and then Ishbosheth is all in view. But what happens to Abner? Well, Abner brokers a deal and he goes to David. He doesn't like, you know, when somebody calls him out, not many people appreciate that. And Abner's definitely not one of them. He says, well, I'll just switch sides. Fine, Ishbosheth, I'll leave you in the dust. I'll gather everybody under David. So he's hoping... Because Abner's not about the kingdom. Abner's about Abner. And Abner is going to do anything. And, uh, and Abner ends up uh, being killed. And it was, a, it, was, it was a measure of revenge. Sin leads to sin, leads to sin, leads to sin, leads to more sin and leads to death. It's just like lies. Lies leads, if you, if you tell one lie, you have to have another lie, you have to have another lie. It, it unravels that way. And this is just an illustration of what we're about to read of how it is that that sin is destructive, always. Abner is murdered because of Joab's re- revenge. And now things are kind of in limbo. We thought that there was going to be this coming together under David of all the tribes. This, this deal is brokered. But now it looks like it's yet again in jeopardy. Things are in limbo. But there's one more scene. There's one more chapter here in chapter 4 before we see David take the throne. Now, I don't know about in your house uh, with your family or your, your friends or roommates. But whenever you sit down to watch a movie, there's often a group that likes a particular genre and there's a group that likes another genre. And that was true in my household. And I'm not going to try to paint with too broad of a brush. But let's just say my mom, my poor mom, there's me, my father, and my brother. She's outnumbered. So it's an action movie night. It's another action movie night. It's a suspense night. And my mom's not particularly fond of these movies. And I can remember distinctly as, you know, as a teenage boy with my brother and my dad watching a great movie. And, it's, and it wasn't bad. It, Mom, it's not bad. It's a, it's a wholesome movie. And it was a great story, a, a story that she really would have engaged in. But she chooses no. And inevitably, when that one scene comes up, who walks through to the kitchen? I see you shaking your head. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And she'll see this. This. I Thank you very much. You can acknowledge this. She walks through. She just happens to walk through. And then she says, look at this. This is so terrible. It's inappropriate and gruesome. This is why I don't watch these movies with you all. And then she heads into the kitchen. And I, 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 I get it. I get it. Well, that's where we're at in the Bible. This is one of those scenes. Oh, wait. But that's been one of those scenes kind of like every other week. There's nothing in Scripture that is airbrushed. There's nothing that is, you know, is edited uh, or fixed up for a particular audience. It's, it's God's word. It's, it's truth. It's history. So let me invite you to stand as we read this chapter together. Hear this. This is the word of God. And then we'll pray. 
and ask God's help. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. And all of Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The, names of, the name of one was Baana, and the name of the other is Rechab, sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also, also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerites fled to Gittim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him and fled up. And when she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Ramon, the Beharite, Rechab and Bahana set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Isbosheth, and he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him, Ishbosheth, in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. And they came into the house as he lay in his bedroom. They struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. And they brought out, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David, verse 9, answered Rechab and Bahana, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Berite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news. He's going back to chapter 1 now. I seized him and killed him at Ziglag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his own bed? Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? Then David commanded his young men and they killed him and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside, hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. You may be seated. Father, thank you for giving us uh, both general revelation and special revelation. We thank you for the beauty of, of the sun and the stars and the glories of the colors of this season in your creation. Lord, we're grateful as well that we have special Revelation, your, your word and your son. And we pray right now for your spirit to bring illumination that we would have clarity and we would even have a, a power to respond because of your spirit at work this very moment. We ask, have mercy on account of Christ. Amen. I know I joked last week about how truth sometimes is stranger than fiction. You know how it is. Sometimes there's a, there's a story, a news headline, and someone, you know, reposted on social media, and they, they, then they put hashtag not the onion, right? Now, I've never done a hashtag, but I enjoy reading the onion, you know, the, the satirical uh, news source. And of course, sometimes it's just so absurd what's printed there. You just think, this is almost comical if that's what really happened, or that's what so-and-so actually said or did. It happened to me again this week. I had to, I, it was NPR, I couldn't believe it. I thought to myself, again, is this the onion or is this the Babylon Bee? But here it is, truth told, in Pharma, Ohio, 
there's an area, uh, there's a man there, uh, Anthony Novak, and he spent four days in jail over a Facebook parody page that he created in 2016 when he, lo- when he was mocking the local police department. He was charged with using a computer to disrupt police functions. But then afterwards, a jury found him not guilty. Now he's taking a civil case to the United States Supreme Court, which is considering taking this up. Now, who cares, right? Well, I'll tell you who cares. The Onion cares, all right? Our most reliable news source that is also quite entertaining, but The Onion cares. The writers and the editors of The Onion have come forward and said, we're championing this guy's First Amendment rights. It's ridiculous that if you criticize your government that you're thrown into prison because of a Facebook parody? This is ridiculous. And so satire and sarcasm are uh, what they argue is not only an instrument of entertainment, which indeed it is, but it is also an honest and important tool of rhetoric. This is what they write. The Onion cannot stand idly by in the face of a ruling that threatens to dis embowel a form of rhetoric that has existed for millennia that is particularly potent in the realm of political debate and that purely incidentally forms the basis of the onion writers paychecks <laughs> you know this is an aside they had to of course throw a little more satire in there sarcasm and satire have indeed existed for millennia uh, and for good reason and even the, the writers of scripture know full well that this is important and take it up and use it. The narrator here of Samuel, I hope to show you, also uses that as well. Here's how we're going to quickly break down uh, this chapter, all right? Uh, First of all, there's dismay. Second, uh, there is dirty work. And then third, there's a decision, all right? So here's how it is. There's dismay. Uh, on, in, in Saul's house, that's the first four opening verses. Then there is dirty work that these two brothers do. We see in verses five through eight. And then there's the decision of King David, which takes up the last portion, verses nine to twelve. Dismay, verse one. Isbosheth is is this already you know fragile uh, puppet king. He's he's over the northern tribes, and he's learned that his great commander. Uh, has been killed and he's despondent, so despondent and so dismayed that he again is, is lacking courage, thinking it's all over. He should not have worried about David. They've already negotiated things, but he doesn't, you know, he didn't anticipate seeing two men from within those northern tribes, a Benjamite subtribe, these two brothers uh, to come forward. He didn't expect there to be uh, this treachery on their part. I just want to make this note, too, also, that this is, this is the real world. Because there's even this reflection on the house of Saul and his, his crippled, lame son, Mephibosheth. He was five years old when he hears about his father, Jonathan, and his grandfather, King Saul, being killed at war. So that's, that's been now seven years. So he, Mephibosheth, is somewhere in the, the realm of you know, 12 or 13 at this point. We have no previous mention of him. We, we don't know the details. But it's believed that the narrator, I think, would show this forth to say, see, this is how bad it is in Saul's house. There is no one left standing. There's no obvious and apparent heir. There's, there's nothing. This is, this is how God wanted it ultimately to unfold. But it is a person that we will find out later. Of course, Mephibosheth has no capacity to, to rule or to take men out into 
battle. We will see him come back into the picture in chapter 9 when King David will show him tremendous love and compassion. What then is the path forward, right? Everything's in limbo. The house of Saul is growing weaker and weaker. The house of David is, is growing stronger and stronger. Well, to help fuel that, or so they think, these two brothers of Ramon are mentioned here. Uh, they come forward and they have all the makings of a plan that is, is it, it, it was not, it was, it was premeditated. It was not impulsive. Uh, it was not just an opportune time. We get the impression that this was thought ahead of time. They had to travel a great distance. They timed it to where they would come around noonday, midday, nap time. It's, it must be an Italian type culture. They have a, you know, a Latin culture. They have a siesta. And, uh, and that's when they are going to go into the king's house. Evidently, the house was, was, was open to some because there would have been resources and aid available to them. It kind of, it, it kind of irks you to think that they walked in there, verse 6, as if they belonged there. Right. Well, we're just getting some grain. If they were to be encountered, they would say, we're just getting some some wheat, some grain. What they hope and what they anticipate is right there in front of them. The king, Ishbosheth, is sleeping. And this is where part of the sarcasm comes in um, by the way of the narrator, because he doesn't want to champion their cause by just telling the facts. He takes verse five and verse seven and he highlights it twice over that the guy was in his bed. He was in his own home. He was not standing up. He was not bearing arms. He was in his bed, asleep, helpless. This is not a battle scene. This is, this is, this is not combat. This is not just. This is, this is cold-blooded murder that you guys are committing. You're not heroic warriors. He highlights that uh, both in verse 5 and 7. These men, they commit treason. And just to note and clarify... There, of course, is nothing wrong with people uh, rallying around King David. They, they did. Many of them knew that David was the promised heir. They did rally around David, especially in the wake of Saul's death. Many people did. But this is their action that they take up. They don't care about seeking out counsel or the authority. They just decide to take this up on their own. And they're not, crea- they're not uh, uh, certainly not creative, but they're not courageous. They're, they're, not, they're self-seeking, Right? They're self-seeking because their hope is that when they travel back, and they do, it would have been down to Hebron. It would have been about 60 miles, and they travel, we we read here in the text, by dark, and they have, uh, you know, the head of Ishbosheth with them. I don't know how that really, you know, worked out, but they're carrying the head, and they they present it to Saul as if he doesn't know who this is. Of course, he does, and they're excited to show him. They're hoping that... uh, like just like the, the guy that back in chapter one, who was the Amalekite, who came and said, look, I have the king's crown and he's dead. Aren't you happy, David? David wasn't happy then. And David is not happy now. Why? Why is David dismayed? Well, this is not what he wanted. This is not the way things should go. They were hoping to get a prominent place. Look at us. This is great. We took care of your enemy for you. And David says, but I've never done it that way. Don't you know? Don't you know the last time this happened? That's what's going to happen again. David is not going to reward them. They want a prominent place. And they're they're trying to get into David's new regime and to leverage Ishbosheth's own head unabashedly so that they can have a place of political power and prominence. What's David's response? Well, let's look at verse 9 together. What does it say? 
Verse 9, they bring the head. Verse 9 says, But David answered Rechab and Banah, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berith, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought that he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziglag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. And there's, that, there's David taking up the sarcasm. You wanted a reward? He got a reward and you're about to get the same reward. It's, it's probably one of those moments when you're like, they're, they're, they're two brothers. They're like, was this your idea? This was your idea. This was your expletive idea. Something has just backfired. They can tell, I'm sure, I, I, we don't know the tone of his voice. We don't know King David's, uh, you know, his countenance. But he is not pleased. They know that it has backfired. Verse 10, David continues... And the narrow we see is, is not, David is not respecting them. He is ridiculing them. They have acted foolishly. They've not acted under his authority. They're not courageous. By the way, how does David know? David highlights again the fact that Ishbosheth was, a, was, was a home alone in his own bed. Except that these two brothers, as, as, as knuckleheaded as they were, Decided that they would they would tell all the details of how they took out Ishbosheth, and David is even more displeased and highlights again the foolishness of their plan. He takes them back to that episode in chapter one. David, friends, has never enacted revenge against even his sharpest, cruelest enemies, although he has. Have had opportunities. He has had the, the, the temptation right in front of him. He has not done so. We know that David doesn't act flawlessly. We know that David does in other respects and other areas. We've talked about even in previous weeks recently. But at this point, David has inquired of the Lord. David is trusting, waiting, uh, seeking the Lord. Perhaps this is one of those times that David might have been honestly tempted himself to say, at a distance, seeing these men walk up with the head of, of yet another person in Saul's house, his enemy, thought, whew, another small victory. But he doesn't succumb to that temptation. He doesn't smile. He doesn't gloat. It would have been wrong because of Ishbosheth's value in life and God's plan. David trusting and waiting on that plan over extended, feels like a very long time to wait. It's also not strategic because multiple times over, the narrator wants us to see and appreciate that David has had nothing to do with the fall of Saul's house as a power grab. It has been the Lord's doing. It has, it's been an unfolding plan. David has not tried to accelerate that or grab for power or done things wrong to try to take the throne. From the earliest of phases. I mean, David didn't even show up on that day. Years and years and years prior, 20 plus years prior when he was a boy. It was, it was God's initiative. It was God's choice. And he had to trust God that in God's perfect time, it would come into focus. These men think they're being crafty and slick. And David says, you're being dirty. This is not the way that we operate. He wants the nation to be unified. David knows that Politically, strategically, this would be unwise because he is someday to be very soon now the head of all of the tribes of Israel. And he doesn't want there to be this ill will or doubt that David was 
in his own manipulative, ambitious way trying to do these things. It could be perceived that way. But not with these guys. You know how it is? Something happens and the majority of people disapprove of it. And lo and behold, in the White House press room comes forward this this statement of outrage. Well, you want to talk about a statement of outrage. I mean, when you take these two guys and cut their hands off and pin them up on a wall for everyone in Hebron to see in the capital city, you get the message real clear. It's not, it's not David in, in some hasty moment. David's never been known to do that. This is an, an exercise of the king's justice. It's their reward. David is going to deter like offenses. He's going to act with clear and swift justice, not vengeance. All right. Their world... Our world. Have you ever noticed that uh, in the fall, I don't really give a whole lot of illustrations in my sermons? Do you know why? Because it's right here in the Old Testament narrative. (laughs) I'm just retelling and illustrating things that God would want us to see and hear and appreciate when we come to his history. It's our history. We are the descendants by faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have been enfolded by by the graciousness of God and to the people of Israel, the people of promise, a covenant community. But I think we would take away something. I think there's some, I think there's some application points and takeaways. Proverbs, the wisdom literature, Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to Death. There are times when we grow impatient with people. I, I know firsthand. Uh, we grow impatient with the process. We, we grow impatient with God. And in our unbelief and in our hunger for control, we want to take matters into our own hands. Again, the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. No doubt. And that applies, by the way, many are the the plans of of men that could be righteous or, or, or evil. But it is the purpose of the Lord that indeed always stands. Our our confession, the, the Westminster Catechism says the decrees of God are his eternal purpose. Whereby for his own glory, he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. The sovereign king, the sovereign king, we can trust him. So I think there's a cautionary tale here about blasphemy and taking the Lord's name in vain in this account. You may say, well, that's interesting. I wouldn't see that. Well, you know, I used to think long ago when I was a young boy, I used to think that there was... You know, I knew not to take the Lord's name in vain, but I thought that there was just one day, just one way to do that. And I definitely didn't want to do that. Right. Not, definitely not with my, my mom in an earshot. Uh, uh, you know what I'm saying? I, I, I did. I did fear the Lord. I, I mean, but but I definitely didn't want to take that's 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 taking the Lord's name in vain. Don't let those words cross your lips. But there are a lot of ways to take the Lord's name up in vain. 
even, I remember just piercingly in seminary, one of my professors, John Frame, talked about how when we curse people and slander them who are made in God's image, we're taking his name in vain. And I think what's happening here in this account is a clear illustration of where that's unfolding with these two men, these brothers, Rechab and Banah. When they say, hey, look, look at verse eight. Let's read it again together. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to the king, to David. They said, look, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. Hmm. Look, it's the Lord who did this. It's the Lord who compelled us to do that on your behalf, for his sake. Isn't this great? These two brothers thought for a moment before they read the countenance and heard the tone of King David. We're your redeemer. We're helping you take the throne. <clears throat> you know, where, where's, our, where's our reward? Dale Ralph Davis, commentator I love here, says they come. These two brothers come. On their hands, they have blood, but theology is on their lips. Let me say that again. They come with blood on their hands, but theology on their lips, expecting that the latter will magically bleach the former. Murder always seems more pleasant than when wrapped in religious considerations. He goes on to say, we must beware. When we explain things theologically, we may simply be using God, using him as an argument, manipulating him for our convenience to keep from submitting to his grace or to his law. Friends, I've been in pastoral ministry for 20 years. I have seen and heard very clearly people take up matters and they, they say, this was the Lord. And they minimize and they justify. They, we, I've heard creative ways. They think I'm honoring God and I chose to overlook this or I chose to act in this way because God is compassionate or God is wrathful or God wants me to be happy. This is, this is the Spirit's working. Can't you see, Pastor? Clearly, in the face of moral compromise, people who I've watched over and again, they have not sought godly counsel. In fact, they've ignored it. And they come back and they they know God's promises, but they're justifying their actions and attitudes. That's taking God's name in vain. You gotta love how David is contrasted here. Because David is a man who was inquiring of the Lord. Like I said, he didn't think what they were doing was slick. And it wasn't going to be cleaned up with saying it was unto the Lord or for the Lord's anointed or however you wanted to, to describe it. He could see through all of that. David knew full well. He had, he had to face the same temptation himself. But he says, no, I'm not going to rejoice at this particular t- turn. You two brothers are not the redeemer that I need. You're not the redeemer of the nation of Israel or the kingdom. Only God is our redeemer. Only God. David is not going to blaspheme. He's going to honor the name of the Lord. That's why in verse nine, when he answers back to them, he says, quote, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And that is a long list of adversity. 
trials and troubles and opposition and resistance time and again. And David has proven faithful. And now he's honoring God's name. I love the fact that this is a protective reality, right? When we're tempted, you think about this, whether it's our impatience or impetuousness or whether it is, you know, just our unbelief raging up and our, our, our desires for things that we know are against our conscience and God's law. And we, we, try to be, we try to get creative. But the best thing to do in the face of, of temptation and idolatry is what David does right here in verse 9. He's grateful. God, you've been good. God has, God has been there. He has never left me nor forsaked me. David is, and if you go read the Psalms, you know this. It's not that you know David doesn't doubt God. He does. He, he, he gets upset with the Lord. But he comes back around and he says, oh, but God, God, look at what he's done. Look at where he's been. Look at his generosity. Look at look at how God has again and again proven that he is trustworthy and gracious. We we don't need to abandon his plans. We don't need to forsake his law. We don't need to suppress our conscience. We, We need to fix our eyes on his plans with gratitude in our hearts that we would stay our mind upon the fact that we have a redeemer and he has brought that into focus through the person and work of Jesus. It's been building. It's been it's it's, it's all there. The, the king, King Jesus, we read it at uh, Pentecost in Acts two. In fact, if you want to turn there, uh, you don't need to leave your finger there because we're not going back to I'm going to close with this. But in Acts chapter two, we see that Peter is preaching at Pentecost inspired of God and the spirit of God is, is obvious. And this is what he says to the people in Acts 2, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, if you ever think that I'm trying to press King David and Jesus, you know, artificially together, not so. He is a descendant of, of, of David, and David is, is pointing us uh, to the person and work of Jesus. Men of Israel, Peter preaches, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Losing the pains of death, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, Messiah yet to come, I saw the Lord always before me, before he has at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh will also dwell in hope. For you do not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your holy one see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Talks about the patriarch David. Talks about quoting here from the psalmist. The great hope of Messiah. Friends, Jesus, brothers and sisters, Jesus came into the world. This is where we find ourselves. We're, we're, we're meandering around. We're, we're trying to discern. Sometimes we don't discern underneath God's word and with counsel and, and seeking him. And we're, we're, we're living and we're acting and we're, we're so often reacting. And don't we need to fix our eyes on Jesus? To, to say, you know, I, I, I have a real redeemer and it's not me. And, and he has proven himself here. Generous, wise, sacrificial. He, he alone is the king, worthy 
of our glory and our surrender and our trust because he he's not abandoned us. I don't need to be impatient. I don't need to be fearful. I don't need to grab for control. I need his help. Jesus didn't come to judge, he says, but to redeem. But he is coming back to judge. And those who are in him, those who are secure, taking refuge in him, and that can be you this very day. Many of you are taking refuge in him. But if you're not, surrender today. Repent. Believe. He will fill you with his spirit and his precious promises. Pray with me, please. Because of your prompting, Lord, and your spirit working, convicting, guiding, counseling us, I pray that our posture would be one of surrender. We pray that you would fill us with with faith and that we would exercise that to treasure Christ more and more, who is our King, our Redeemer, our only Redeemer and Savior, King Jesus. We know he set us free to have victory in part and someday in full. And right now we need wisdom. We need wisdom to have our lives guided in a way that we're, we're dying unto sin and living unto Christ. I pray that for every man and woman and boy and girl in this room. Lord, I thank you for your goodness, your gifts. May, we, may the gratitude that we see in David who knows that you were with him, we would, we would claim and, and lay hold of that precious reality. Lord, I thank you today for the gift of new life in our church. We rejoice with the Hendersons at the arrival of Oliver. We pray right now for his health, that you would sustain him. We thank you and rejoice with Paul and Katie over the safe arrival of Lucy. And we do continue to remember the Gipes and the Popes as they wait for uh, their children. Lord, I pray you'd be merciful as we think about uh, people in Florida right now who are impacted so heavily because of loss and grief in the wake of this recent hurricane. Would you have mercy? Would you work through various channels and through your people? Use this for your kingdom purposes and glory in the hearts and lives of people to show forth your power and might and mercy. Lord, we think of people who are grieving and the, the great loss of, of war in Ukraine and, and Russia. We pray you'd grant peace. Father, I lift up people who are burdened today with illness, chronic pain that lingers with distress, with addiction, with loneliness. I pray that you would comfort them, that you would make your precious promises very real to them. Father, I thank you today for churches in our area. I pray you'd raise up even more churches that faithfully preach the gospel. And I lift up Calvary Chapel and Pembroke Assembly of God. Would you keep their congregations their leadership unified on mission so that people would come to embrace Christ. Would you bring, Lord, by your spirit, repentance and revival and renewal to our community? And whether we live here or whether we live across the country, I pray that your church, your people, we would remember that our real governor and king is Jesus and our real citizenship is in the kingdom of God to come. We pray it would come quickly. Through Christ, we pray all these things. Uh, even.